me, please, in your Bibles this evening. We're turning to Nehemiah again, Nehemiah in chapter 2. Nehemiah and the chapter 2. We're going to take time to read from verse 11. And we're returning to the same topic as last week, preparation for God's work. But we're returning to the third scene in Nehemiah. Now we're going to read the second scene to get our context again. But this evening we'll take our focus from verse 17 through to verse 20. But we're turning in Nehemiah, please, in the chapter 2. And we'll read from the verse 11 through to the end of the chapter. Of course, Nehemiah has travelled to Jerusalem now. And he's about to take his rest for three days. And we read in verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, and I, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down. And the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool. And there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. And of course, as we know from last week, Nehemiah went quietly about his work and he was planning his strategy. But now we come to verse 17 and now he turns to the people and he's going to start enthusing them for the work that's ahead. So here he is in verse 17, and he says this, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress we're in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Jeshem, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them, and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this evening. Now we will... Now, we're coming again to the conclusion of the second chapter of Nehemiah this evening. We're finishing this, these three scenes that we painted last week. It began in the palace of Shushan across there in Babylon. And the Jews had been in captivity for 70 years. And some of the Jews had now been returning from captivity to Jerusalem. And you'll remember in chapter 1 how Nehemiah's brother Hananiah came to visit Nehemiah there in the palace in Shushan. And they'd had a normal conversation 
And Nehemiah had asked how are things in Jerusalem and Hannah and I told him about the ruined walls and the burnt down gates and Nehemiah was burdened and he went to prayer for four months. And of course last week we considered the first two scenes in chapter 2. We took a step into the palace of Shushan and we learned that Nehemiah had a continuous burden. He was continuously burdened. His burden continued when the Lord answered his prayer and the king came to him. It wasn't that that was the end of his burden. We challenged ourselves that if you want to be useful in the Lord's work, you need a continuous burden. You need to be continuously burdened for his work and burdened to see souls saved and burdened to see the saints of God lifted up. And he had a continuous burden. But you'll remember how he continued in prayer as well. We remember when the king asked him what was wrong, when the king asked him what he could do, we read that little verse, that precious verse in verse 4 of chapter 2. We're just at the end and he says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. We remember how that was an arrow prayer. There he was in the presence of the king, probably terrified because of the custom of the day. He was sad in the king's presence, could have been executed. And the king asked him, What can I do for you? Backed up with four months of prayer. And he sends this prayer to heaven and asks the Lord for help there in that moment and he continued in prayer there in, in the palace but of course he was in continuous preparation and you'll remember how from verse 7 through to verse 10 he knew exactly what he needed when the king asked for it he knew the letters and permissions he needed he knew exactly what his plan was to get to Jerusalem and all the materials he would need and he was meticulous in his work for the Lord that's really important that not just that we pray that the Lord will move, but that we're prepared to put the work in. That we're prepared to be the people that the Lord will use. That we're prepared, if you like, to be the feet to our prayers. And that's really important. And that's what we learned in the palace in Shushan. And then we came with him um, to across the river at night to the ruins of Jerusalem. And you remember how he looked around the broken down walls and the gates with a small band of men with him. And apart from that, he told absolutely no one. And his one motive was that the Lord had placed a burden in his heart. The Lord had placed this in his heart. You remember he rested when he arrived. How important that is for the, those who work for the Lord, each and every one of us, that we rest. That we rest, that we take time is just as important. Then he was motivated. He went out. He knew what he was doing. His motivation was that the Lord had put this in his heart. And he examined the ruins. He prepared for the work. He looked around. He didn't go straight in. He went and he carefully looked around to see what needed to be done. And this evening we're coming to this final scene in chapter 2 when Nehemiah brings all the people around him and he addresses the people. Uh, and there he is and he's brought all the people together. He's gone about all the quiet work. He's, he's went about all his preparation. And now he's ready to exhort the people. He's ready to get them enthused for the work that's ahead. But you know, sometimes getting people enthused for the work ahead, you have to be honest with them. You have to be honest with them. And Nehemiah was very honest with them. In fact, there was a frank appraisal. There was a frank appraisal. He says in verse 17, now I wonder, can you hear him? He brings all the people together and he says, you see the distress we're in? Do you see the trouble we're in? Now we need to pause here because we need to notice the reason why Nehemiah asked this question. The reason why he asked this question of the Jewish people around because they have been sitting in this maybe for years, maybe some for months, and they've just got used 
to what was going on. They'd got used to the broken down walls. This was normal now. They got used to the burnt gates. And you know, the people who had even been with him on the night journey, who went round the walls, they didn't see anything new. They just saw the scene as it had been before. They were accustomed to everything that's going on. And Nehemiah has to turn to the people and it's almost like giving them a spiritual shake. I wonder if you ever had someone you're, you're talking to them and they can't seem to listen. And they're just, it's not going in. You just want to grab them by the shoulders and give them a shake. And that's what Nehemiah really did. He says, do you see the trouble we're in? Can you not see the mess we're in? Can you not see that the walls of the holy city are broken down? Can you not see that the gates are burnt? Can you not see that the temple's in disrepair? This is meant to be God's dwelling place on earth. And it's in a mess. And Nehemiah, he tells them it as he is. Now this is a very important principle that we see here. Because whether you're an elder, a deacon, or if you hold a position of leadership here in our assembly, this is a quality that all good leaders will have. That you're able to see things that other people miss. And both biblically and historically, God raises leaders who have a somewhat prophetic influence. And what I mean by this is that they're able to look at the times and the seasons that we live in, and they're able to take scripture and they're able to proclaim it in a relevant way in the time that we live. And we're, they're able to look at scripture and see the problems that are within the church and within our land. In these days. I'm not speaking about people who are able to tell the future. I'm talking about people who are able to look at the day we live in. And understand it. And take scripture and make it fully relevant. To the day that we live in. To be able to say thus saith the Lord. To a generation. And able to say do you see the trouble we are in. I wonder if we've grown accustomed to broken down walls in our lives. We've had these challenges before as we've gone through Nehemiah. Wonder if we even stopped noticing them the way the people in Jerusalem had. And everything that's broken down is normal now. I wonder if, as an assembly here at Grange, have we grown accustomed to broken down walls that need rebuilt and that need rebuilt fast? You know, many people look at church attendance these days as a good thing. They look at good numbers and you hear different pastors say, well, my church is doing well. How many do you get out on Sunday? That's not what it's about. You know, it could be that we require a quiet leader like Nehemiah to come into a place and to prophetically, prophetically say, well, look at the trouble we're in. You might have big numbers. You might be doing well numerically, but how are you doing spiritually? You know, it's great that we have so many boys and girls and teens here at Grange. And praise God for the younger members of our congregation. But we can't sit in our laurels and celebrate this. Because it's vital to teach the children effectively in a way that excites them to learn and live for the Lord. That's your responsibility as parents. That's our responsibility as a church. To love these young people because they live in, an, they, they live in a time when social media has their ear and school has their ear and TV programs have their ear and cartoons have their ear and all these things are influencing their wee lives. But what are we doing as a church to influence them for Christ. What are we doing as parents. To influence them for Christ. What are we doing to protect them. 
You know, even we can grow accustomed to these things and allow our children to to enter into things that we don't even realize they're doing through mobile phones and everything. So important. So important to consider these things. Let me encourage you tonight. Uh, today I was in Balamina Academy and I spoke at their scripture union after school, their junior scripture union. And in their junior school, they have approximately 600 children. And of those 600 children, there were 80 children at scripture union this afternoon that came into their assembly hall. And I was speaking to the teachers afterwards. And they said to me that many of those children, two of which I saw from our own wee fellowship, many of those children are being salt and light in their classrooms. They're the Christian teachers who are telling me that they're in and their behavior is exemplary. That they try their best to live for Christ. And they say it's very obvious. That's of those 80 children. I thought that was amazing. Just when speaking to the teachers. How those children are seeking to live for Christ. In their wee school and in their wee classrooms. I thought it was great. Now I did embarrass Tom and Calvin. And um, I was telling them about our. Um, I was telling them about our youth club at the end. And. I said, there's Tom and Calvin, and they go on. And Calvin smiled, and Tom nearly dived under his seat. <laughs> um, but it was good to see them there. But it was, uh, maybe in hindsight, I shouldn't have pointed them out. Um, but there you go. But, you know, we have a responsibility to our children. We have a responsibility to teach them and to nurture them in the things of Christ. You know, Nehemiah, he didn't believe in a one-man ministry, and neither do I, for that matter. And he brought all the people together and he got them involved. And he got them in part of the work and he wanted them to step out and to arise and build. I wonder will you give yourself to a frank appraisal maybe of Grange Baptist. Maybe it's your own life you need to give a frank appraisal to. You need to do an assessment of your spiritual condition. Maybe you need to do a spiritual MOT if you like. Will you take time to sit before God and analyse how you're living and your motives and your practices and your habits and just tell it as it is. That, that, that you come to the scripture and you use it as a mirror and you see yourself as you really are. And the things that aren't right that you come before Christ and confess them and live for him. We need to be frank. We need a frank appraisal of where we are. That's what Nehemiah did. He says, do you see the distress we're in? See the trouble we're in? I'm sure there have been people who had been there for a long time. And maybe they'd made wee efforts to start the work. And they'd failed. And I'm sure there's some people who were there with Nehemiah. And I'm sure they turned to Nehemiah and they said, There's no way we can do this. This is above our pay grade. This is way beyond us. Nehemiah was able to tell them later on in the verses, There's nothing too hard for God. Because God had put it in his heart. And God was going to build. You see, not only do we see Nehemiah's frank appraisal, but we see his motivating exhortation. His motivating exhortation. You know, there's plenty of people who like to point out the problems. And that's all they do. And they're hard people to listen to. It's like going to a car garage and the mechanic points out all the problems with your car and you say, well, what are you going to do? And he says, well, we're not that type of garage. Help, let me help you push your car back out. That's not much help. That's ridiculous. And Nehemiah, he comes and he tells the people, here's the problem. Do you see the state we're in? But he then turns around and he says, I know how we're going to fix it. 
And the role of the church in these days is not to stand around and point at the world and point the problems, or point even inside the church and point out all the problems, but instead we are to point to the Savior and we are to be the people who solve the problems with Christ's help. And that's what Nehemiah was prepared to do. He was prepared to come and look at the walls and he went around the walls, but he said, I know how to solve this. With God's help, God's put it in my heart and we're going to fix this. We're going to arise and build. You know, when he tells them in verse 18, I think this is lovely. He says, then I told them, I told them of the hand of God, which was upon me. The hand of God, which was upon me. And he gave them this motivating exhortation, God's hands on my life and God's going to help us. I wonder, can we say the same for ourselves? That in our daily walk, that we feel God's hand upon us. You know, we can think of Bible characters like Nehemiah. Sometimes we think that what they achieve for God is something beyond us. And somehow that Nehemiah was a special man. And that he was different than you and me. And then maybe you read biographies. And you read of Christians even in the 20th century and you see men and women with like passions as we and yet they prevailed with God. You can read stories about Hudson Taylor and D.L. Moody and C.H. Spurgeon and all the rest of them and it should encourage your soul because let me tell you there was nothing special about them either. They were just mere men. You could think of Amy Carmichael. You could think of many of these people and they were just normal individuals who were willing to be used of God. And I want to tell you that tonight, just as the hand of God was put upon those people, the hand of God can be upon you too in the work that you do for the Lord. And then you see that the people, after they've been exhorted, they've listened to Nehemiah say at the end of verse 17, let us rise up and build the wall of Jerusalem. And do you know what their response is when they heard that the hand of God was upon Nehemiah? They says, yeah, we will arise and build. He enthused the people for the work. Maybe you need a work in the church. Let me tell you, you need to enthuse the people in your little team to come along with you with the work. To encourage them that God's hand is upon the work. To, to be constant in prayer for that work that you do. To ask the Lord to bless it. To ask the Lord to guide. That's what Nehemiah had done. And then he came along knowing that God's hand was with him. And he says, do you know what? God's hand's upon me and I want you to help me with this work. Let us rise up and build. Let me tell you, I'm not interested in building up an empire for Grange Baptist. That's not what I'm interested in. But we're, what we're interested in is fervoring the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And getting more people into this building and winning them for Christ. That's what I'm interested in. That's what I mean by rise up and build. It means that we need to be the salt and light. How are we going to go about that? Well, I believe we need to get out and round the doors of Grange. And get people in. In a few weeks time we're going to be having a children's gospel service. We're going to be get, getting leaflets printed and I personally want to spend time going round the doors inviting people and children in. But not only that, opening up gospel conversations with people. I wonder will you join me? I believe we need to step outside the door of the church.
And I believe we need to become the salt and light in this community. Because we can drive up to this church door, walk in, walk out, get into our car and drive out of the community. People don't have a clue what's going on in here. We need to step out of our door. That might mean stepping out of our comfort zone. But we're to go, we're to go and share the gospel with all the world and that starts at our front door. That starts with these houses round about us here in the community. Being the salt and light and green. I believe we need to create a bridge between this local church and the community that we're in. You see, there's people up and down the Taylorstown Road. They don't even know that one day they're going to stand before a holy God and be judged. And we, we are going to be held accountable for their souls. And we are going to be asked what we did for the Lord here in Green. And the people out there aren't going to come unless they're invited. You know, Nehemiah essentially says to the people, who's with me? And they stood up and they says, let us arise up, rise up and build. Well, I say to you, dear brothers and sisters tonight, who's with me? Are we going to rise up and build? Are we going to take the step out into this community? Be the salt and light that we should be. Nehemiah's frank appraisal, Nehemiah's motivating exhortation, and then of course came the predictable persecution. It was sure to come. Anytime we try and achieve something for the Lord, the devil isn't too far behind. And in verse 19, which is very telling, the devil, when he faces us, he doesn't give up after the first attempt. You see, in verse 10, we meet Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite. And when they heard that Nehemiah was coming, these kind of grumble within themselves. They don't do much to oppose it at that stage. In fact, they might not have spoken, but they just thought about it. and They weren't too pleased about the work coming along. But then, of course, spiritually, we could say, and I say this carefully, that, that Nehemiah takes the whole operation up a gear in verse 17. And he's now exhorting the people and he's given his frank appraisal and he's done all these things. And as, as he goes up a gear spiritually, well, the devil goes up a gear spiritually as well. Because then we hear the voices of derision coming in, persecution coming in. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us. He says, what are you doing? You're never going to do it. you even have the kings of permission to do this? And here they are opposing the work of God. I want to tell you something. If we step out of these doors and if you like go up a gear or two spiritually, we're going to face opposition. But I'm so glad that the Lord reminds us in the Gospel of John. He says, ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I love that verse. Because no matter what opposition comes our way, no matter what attack of the devil comes our way, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know, Nehemiah answers his critics. Do you know what he says to them? He just turns to them and says, The God of heaven, verse 20, He will prosper us. 
Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. I don't care what you say. We're going to arise and build because God's hand is upon me. And God's on our side. And not just God, he says, the God of heaven. He will prosper us. And we, his servants, will arise and build. Can you see Nehemiah's confidence? He had confidence in God. God will prosper us. Hallelujah. Because we read that God indeed did prosper him. Because he had faith in what God had put in in his heart. And God was going to bring it to completion. And no matter what what opposition came, he said, we're going for this. We're arising and building. You know, I spent two years as assistant pastor in Bambridge Baptist. And one of their former pastors was a pastor called Pastor Eccles. He was the third pastor of Bambridge Baptist. And during his time, the small congregation there in Bambridge experienced a rapid growth. And they enjoyed times of refreshing and revival as an overspill, really, from the great revival in 1859. And during that time, there was such a great fervor and hunger for the gospel that during one particular year, Pastor Eccles, he improvised. And he actually put a pulpit in his lawn at his home. And he would have preached to multitudes of people who would gather every day to hear the word of God. And at one time, it was estimated that up to 2,000 people gathered on his lawn and out in the street around to hear God's servant. During those years, many hearts were touched with deep, by deep conviction of sin. And the sources say that many were transformed by the power of the gospel. I wonder, do you believe that God can do that in Grange today? You know, as we close tonight, this part of our service, I want to give you three reasons. Three reasons why I believe we need to arise and build now. The first is this. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We build in gospel foundations. We build in Christ the solid rock. And in Romans we read that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You know that word power in that verse? It comes from the word dynamo. Which means dynamite. Dynamite power. Explosive power. Power to change lives. Power to destroy the life of sin and give someone a fresh start with Christ. Why do we need to arise and build? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We have the greatest power that this whole world knows. That power dwells in the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. Secondly, it's the power of God unto salvation. Secondly, because we're commanded to. This is simple. We've been commanded to preach the gospel to all creation, to stand up and go out. It's not just the pastor's job or an elder's job or the deacon's job or the people who are in each of the works in the church. It's every single person's job to go out and preach the gospel because we read in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It couldn't be any simpler than that. It says every creature. We need no other reason. Christ has commanded it. 
Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ being willing to go and suffer and die in your place and take your punishment for your sin so that you can be completely free, so you could be here in your right mind tonight to do all this. And then he comes and he rises again and he simply commands his children to go and imagine not going. You know, I heard someone talking about how churches in our country aren't sending out many missionaries into our world anymore. And I believe that's because we as church members are failing to be missionaries, if you like, in the place that God has planted us already. And if Christ was willing to go to the cross for you, I wonder are you willing to joyfully go and tell others that he did it for them too? Do you know what one of the biggest problems in the church today is? And I touched on it in March when I was here taking the Bible studies. It's spiritual laziness. Let me tell you what it's like. It's like when you're lazing around on the sofa watching the TV, as many people do. You can't be bothered doing anything. You're, you're, you're just, your whole body's shut down and you feel tired. Then one of your closest friends phones you to organise to do something that you absolutely love doing and all of a sudden you're awakened out of your laziness in the couch and, and all of a sudden you're energised. I wonder if you ever had that feeling. Why is it not like that when it comes to God's word? Why is it not like that when it comes to the gospel? Why aren't we excited to share it? Because the gospel is more exciting than any, any activity that you'll do with your friends. I don't know him that well, but a number of years ago in Iron Hall, they had a mission. It's nearly 10 years ago, I'm sure now. There's a wee evangelist from Yorkshire called Roger Carswell came along to preach. And you can actually see some of his videos on YouTube. And this will prove my point here. I quite often use his wee tracks. He writes wee great gospel tracks. But you know what struck me about Roger? He genuinely had an excitement and passion for the message he was sharing. He believed God can and will see him. And he was willing to obey God's command to preach the gospel. And I want to tell you even better, he preached it with a smile. I'm telling you, go on to YouTube and see him. He smiles because the gospel means something to him. And I think that's amazing. Three reasons why we need to rise and build. Number one, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Number two, we're commanded to. Number three, very solemnly, there's a cry from hell. There's a cry from hell. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, I'm sure. Lazarus had everything in life, but he didn't prepare for eternity. And when the rich man was in hell, he begged Lazarus to warn his five brothers to give their lives to Christ. Because the rich man didn't want his family to end up where he was. Dear brothers and sisters this evening, there are people all around us and they're on their way to hell. And you know, quite often I ask the Lord to open up the lid of hell. And to show me it. To make me a better gospel preacher. And if we were able to walk through the dark caverns of hell today and listen to the cries of those who are there, they would be calling out the same thing as Lazarus was. Go and tell my family about Christ. Tell them the need to get saved. Go and tell them the need to go to the gospel meeting. 
Go out into the streets and tell them, warn them. I'm sure a cancer doctor takes no delight in telling a patient that they have cancer, but it's necessary in order for treatment to start. And I believe our duty is to warn people that they're lost and that hell is real. And it's a result of man's sin and rejection of the finished work of Christ. And there's a cry from hell tonight that should motivate us to arise and build. Philip Annett is someone who is a CEF worker. And back in 2013, I attended CEF training week. And Philip was leading the work of CEF Ireland at that time. And he was leading a session called Reaching the Laws. And he described a poor attitude towards a five-day club. This is what he said. He said, it's not about throwing out the blue mat onto the green. And then being relieved that your memory verses taught or, you, or that your Bible lesson went well or that the club went well and up into the next generation. Philip went on to say something that has impacted my life ever since he said it in that day in 2013. He said this, many children sat in your mat are on their way to hell. God has given you the responsibility of sharing the gospel with them. We ought not to be ashamed of the gospel. We ought to see where the people around us are really going. Because I would be ashamed if someone was in hell today and could say of me, but Peter never told me. Where are you tonight in all this? Where are we as an assembly? Do we need to look at our situation and deliver a frank appraisal here at Grange? Or even on ourselves? Will we be motivated by God's word to arise and build? To step out? Does he have your all? Are you completely surrendered to him? I pray today that we'll all be involved in the work one way or another. And I hope that we'll prepare ourselves for the work ahead. And my prayer is that the gospel will break new ground here in Grange and the surrounding area. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you just now and the challenge of your word weighs heavy on our hearts tonight. And Father, we pray that you would give us eyes just like the Saviour. That when he looked out in the crowds, we read that he had compassion upon him. Father, as we look beyond our church door this evening and step into the car park, we can see many houses round about. And Father, within them are people on their way to a lost eternity. We realise it's our responsibility. You have put us here, your people, to go out there and to share the gospel with them. To invite them into our services. And Father, to show them this wonderful power of the gospel that has transformed our lives. 
Father, we thank you for saving us. We thank you, Father, that one day we will stand in heaven. But, Father, we pray that you would make hell a reality to us. Father, we want to arise and build. We bow now before you and we ask you for your help and wisdom to show us what we need to do. Father, we pray for the coming services this weekend, the harvest. We realise that there will be many will step through our door who maybe don't step through very often a church door. Father, be pleased this weekend to see you. Father, use each of us as individuals where we are, whether it be in work, whether it be our neighbours or family. Father, we just pray that you would enthuse us for your work. Father, be pleased to use us to lead others to Christ. Motivate us again. Father, we're sorry for the times that we keep our mouth shut. And we pray for your forgiveness. We pray, Father, that you will help us from here on to be a people who are zealous about your work. Father, bless us now as we come to pray for the needs of our we assembly. Father, we just pray for your help and we pray that we will know your presence with us as we bow before you and make our needs known to you. Father, we pray all this in the Saviour's precious name. Amen.